What's up, guys? Back for another episode of My Biggest Lessons. I got my good friend Tim Shields on, founder, CEO, U-Ball. What's up, bro? How we doing, man? Yeah, thanks for having me. Been watching this for a minute. Excited to be on. Yeah, dude. I appreciate you coming on, man. So we we probably met, what, two years ago, give or take? I saw U-Ball on the scene. Yeah, I think we initially connected, yeah, probably two years ago, and it just sort of stayed in touch for a while. I think we tried to initially start seeing how we could start working together, didn't come to fruition right out of the gate, and then eventually it was just like, we got to work together sort of thing. Absolutely. So for the people that don't know you, Ball, what is it? How do you describe it? And just talk to me about some recent success. Yeah, for sure. So the way I would describe U-Ball is really two things. It's a new sport and it's a new product. So it is a new grass or sand version of basketball. And so the way you play it is there's no dribbling. You get three steps. And the product itself is a basically a basketball hoop that you can pack up, take wherever, set up on the beach or on grass in a few minutes. And the way I try to describe it is we're trying with U-Ball, we're trying to create basketball's brother, not just simply a, a cool product line. So you can just set up a hoop anywhere, but we're trying to create a new version of basketball that is complementary to basketball that is played on grass or sand. And, and another way I like to describe it is if when James Naismith first invented basketball, what he could have done, it would have been hard to know back then, but what he could have done was create a company called Basketball Inc. And Basketball Inc. is the company that runs, sells physical basketballs. They sell physical basketball hoops. Basketball Inc. runs all of the different professional basketball leagues in the world because they created this sport. And they run everything related to the basketball industry. And instead, what happened was it ended up being over time a piecemeal thing. Okay, we got the NBA here. We got Spalding here for the physical product sales. We have FIBA here for Europe. We have, and it just really just was piecemeal. And no one really, it ended up just being an industry, but there was no one entity that created the industry behind the industry. And so, what we're trying to do with UBall is have UBall Inc., where UBall is the space itself and U-Ball is make it where it do basketball ink, but in U-Ball's form. There's a volleyball company out there called CrossNet. kind of does something similar. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think this is music to your ears. <laughs> That's awesome. That's, I mean, that was exactly what was captivating for me. As like, I didn't grow up playing volleyball. I grew up playing basketball. So when yeah, I saw right, U-Ball yeah. on Instagram for the first time, I was like, this is the fucking sickest game ever. How have I not seen this? How does it not happen? So why why did you get into it in the first place, right? Like you grew up playing sure. What was that like? Yeah, yeah, I mean, a huge basketball fan. And so really the way I got into it, the initial sort of conception of the idea was, so I'm one of four kids. And so we'd always go on family vacation in the summertime. And what we would try to do as four kids is find a nearby blacktop to play two-on-two basketball. And so there was one particular vacation where we really couldn't find one. And that was when it really sort of the idea kind of hit of, oh, wow, there really should be some kind of secondary form of basketball that's played on sand. Initially, we've been thinking it was mainly sand and then realizing that grass is a similar use case that most every other major sport is played on grass. Why is basketball really the only major sport not played on a natural surface type of thing? And so that's how, how it started. So it really started mainly just product focus, more of how do I make it where there's a form of basketball that I can just play anywhere just logistically and physically and then from there, morphed into, okay, wait, there's an activity here. Wait, there's a sport here. We have to, there has to be rules in order for this type of new activity and now sport to, to take place. And so that's when it really started over time unfolding. Okay, wait, okay, wait. It's not just a physical product opportunity. There's a, there's a space here 
that could be creative where we tried instead of just to have one cool product, why not create a brother to basketball is now sort of the new initiative. And it's sort of over time unfolded that way. Yeah. So I could take a conversation two different ways. I want to get into manufacturing and production and all of that in a little bit. Yep. But as you're talking about growing the sport, from my perspective, we've made so many, I wouldn't say mistakes, but learning learning lessons that growing a sport takes a long, long time. And you've yeah. only been at it for, what is it, three, maybe four years at this point? Really? It hit, it hit the market August of 2020, so not quite two yeah, years exactly. yet. So not, not even there, yeah. So it's like, what have you learned in regards to growing a sport? And because it's not, it's not easy and it's definitely not financially pretty when you're trying to grow something right. so quickly. Talk to me about that. Totally. So there's a couple different sort of threads there. So, and I can go into a couple of them. Number one, there's always a set of manufacturing challenges growing and, and making certain updates you want to make and things like that. So I'll, I'll go there in a second. But the other piece is how creating a sport and then creating a product that, that, is with that sport, there, there can a lot of times be a ton of synergy there, but there's sometimes slightly separate goals. There's times where, say, there's a slightly different use case at times for someone who totally wants to just use the U-Ball product for a fun vacation. And then there's kind of a different use case of people that are like, hey, I see this as a next up and coming sport. I want to be the f- first in line for whenever there's pros needed. I want to be one of the best in the country at it. Sometimes there's a slightly different use case between someone that really just wants the product and other people that are like, hey, I view myself as the next great U-ball player. So sometimes there's a disconnect there, not always. And so it's kind of bridging that gap to make it where it's one symbiotic relationship between product, sport, athletes playing the sport competitively, and people playing it just for fun casually on a vacation. So that's sort of number one on the building side that is an important dynamic that you have to be very intentional about. And then number two, uh, on the manufacturing side, a million lessons learned there, whether it's navigating supply chain issues, delays, or things like that. But I think a big lesson I learned pretty early on, and luckily it was early, where it wasn't at a scale where it was a huge, huge deal. But one thing I learned really early on was when you come out with a new product, there's a lot of times very small, from inventory run to inventory run, a lot of small tweaks you want to make here and there. Oh, I think we can make this part better for the experience. I think we could improve this particular part. You just get marginally better with each inventory run. And one thing I learned is even if you think you really know your product so well, it is so important anytime you make any slight tweak to the product to profusely product test it before you put that into production. What we had, luckily, again, it was early on, we had a really good feel for the product. The first really inventory run went well. And what we wanted to do was cut out a little bit of the weight of the product to make it slightly more portable, hit certain shipping numbers from a weight standpoint and things like that. And really early on, so we cut a certain amount of weight out of the rim and didn't do enough extensive testing of it. And because of that, it made it where the rim was especially prone to bending. And luckily, it didn't ever end up getting into a customer's hands. We had to do a whole fire drill of, oh my God, we got to reproduce these, this set of rims to make sure it's still good. And luckily, it was at unit counts where it was still fixable and not totally this huge major blow. But that was a big learning lesson for me of, okay, there's a difference between wanting to always constantly improve. But when you take those tweaks from on paper to truly time to go into production, like act as if this is your first time experiencing the product. At, don't rest on your laurels of, oh, I know my product. This will be fine. Let's throw it into production at scale or anything like that. That was the biggest thing for me. Is like a product tweak is, is important to do and you need to be doing it a lot, but it's a big deal. And you can't just throw it into production too quickly. 
sort of thing. Absolutely. Are you looking at product testing? Is it like over a certain amount of time? Like how, when, when could you be like, yes, this room is ready. Is it, it yeah. 20 U ball games or like what, what's kind of the number? There's two, there's two main ones. So the very first filter is we do this thing called a hang test. So we literally take someone that's 200 pounds, 190 pounds and they can they hang on it where the rim's fine. That's the okay. the most short term thing. And then from there, usually over the course of five games, like there's two types of force. There's like a max force of just one person totally hanging on it, and there's sometimes it's a little bit more of a constant slight force. Yeah. So it starts with really can it survive hang test? That's the first filter, and then from there, typically five games of people that are pretty good athletes where they're dunking on it is the last filter typically like a college tournament like if you ball were to throw like a tournament at a fraternity or just any random college if it can survive the whole day when you play say 10 games five games whatever with guys really throwing down on it it's it's good to go from there it's so it's really test for the extremes because more often than not people use it in a more basic setting hey some some dunks here and there it's not like everyone's six three and crazy vertical necessarily yeah, no, that's a that's a good frame, dude. It's it's funny. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when we put out CrossNet H two O, the water product, yep, we didn't test the the PVC plastic in extreme heat, and okay. every or, every order that went to Arizona on our first drop melted. Oh so my god! Would, yeah, that makes every, sense. Every, Every customer across all 49 states was fine and sending back positive feedback. Everyone was loving it. Everybody in Arizona sent photos of their nets completely melted. That's we didn't, wild. We didn't even think to test like that extreme heat, like sitting on an asphalt, like blacktop next to a pool right. in Arizona. Dude, it was a nightmare. So <laughs> we had to re-engineer the entire product. It took like a full year to get it to be what it is today. But that was just – Shit just is always going to happen, period. Like regardless of how many times you do the hang test, like shit is going to happen. It's how do you roll with the punches? Are you working with the manufacturer close enough that they're willing to be nimble and not like over for like the smallest things? But dude, it's, it's been a crazy journey. I mean, you're, you're sold over, I don't know, thousands of view balls yep. at this point. It's been ridiculous. How the hell do you get Lonzo Ball, Tyree Kill? How are you getting these people playing? Because it's hard for me, right? Like I would love to get cross net in the hands of these famous athletes. Yeah. Volleyball is not the sexiest sport. Basketball is obviously a little bit sweet, like cooler. Right. How, how is that working? And are you leveraging it's, it's, that content? It's so, it's so cool. It is because it's not like we're paying any of them money. It, they, that what's so cool about it was like a number of these people, it's not even like we're directly sending them one. Like we found out they had one was through for, for a number of them is what's really cool. And they'll just, they'll post about it on their own. For example, like Lonzo Ball played a whole game of U-Ball put it on his Instagram, on an Instagram live for 10 minutes and then posted that to his his Instagram feed for a 10-minute video. And Tyreek Hill made a whole YouTube video about U-Ball where he put the logo on the screen. Where he's, this is from U-Ball. These are the guys. They're dope. You got to check them out. You can basically set it up anywhere. This is crazy. I got it's I've been waiting to, to try this out. I think started working for U-Ball was, I think once you start getting a, I, I think it helps that it's, it is the type of thing conducive to you want to post about it. Cause like you dunk on someone on the beach. It's not all oh, you're pulling teeth to post that. We're not selling insurance, but I, I think it was a combo of, we had something that was very organically postable. And then from there, it was a momentum thing. Once one athlete saw one, then it was, Oh, okay. We got to get one more. Out. And now it's okay. You got rant. You got miles Garrett wanting one. You got a bunch of guys yeah, like that. That'd be sick. Right. And so, and so now we have a number of those. And so it's cool too, is there's a number of athletes that have already posted about it just organically on their own Instagram. And then there's 
a ton of athletes that just have one that haven't posted about it quite yet, but are already in their hands. Even a lot of even extra notable people. So it's, I think it was a, a lucky, a little bit of a luck, a little bit of a momentum thing. And I think we are also lucky to be doing something where it's just very organically postable and just there's a lot of synergy there. So I think some of it's just being lucky to be in the right space and then taking advantage of the momentum of it. Makes sense. Are you like, how are you trying to motivate them to post it? Obviously, there's a handful of people. Totally. Like get it, getting another Tyree Kill video would be sick, right? Or Absolutely. another Lonzo video. Are you reaching out? I mean, obviously, you're reaching out to these guys. What's the conversation? What's the follow-up? Because you can't afford Alonzo Ball. Absolutely. Like, There's not many companies that can. Like, right. How's that conversation look like? Basically, my method is very simple. So sometimes I, they, I find out they have one. Sometimes they reach out and just say, hey, they DM. Like, hey, can I get one? And Yeah, of course. The, the way I approach it is always send them one. Don't ask any questions. And then once I know they've gotten it, letting them know, I send them just a simple message of, hey, no pressure, but it would mean a lot if you made it made some post about it. No pressure whatsoever. It helps young companies like us as we're growing. Where you make it where it's sort of a no pressure, almost like person to person type thing. Hey, no pressure here, but it would mean a lot for us being a young company. If you use it, if you made a post about it, no, again, no pressure type of thing. There's something there, that type of delivery is really, I think what's had a lot of success. And I think it kind of reminds them, oh, damn, like they're people too. They're young. I want to help them out. Again, it's not like they're like asking, like saying it has to happen in exchange for the product. It's just more like, hey, I really hope you like it. If you made a post, that would be amazing. But no worries if not kind of thing. Because exactly. there's definitely some athletes that they'll say that and they don't necessarily post it. But a good bit of them do, whether it's a story. Not always they go to literally making a full-on YouTube video about it or making an Instagram post 10 minutes long about it. But yeah. a lot of times like stories and things like that, it is that's kind of the way I've approached it so far. And that's, I think, what's helped you both sort of find that nook where it's clearly we can't afford them yet, but they like what we're doing. So let's try to make it where it's a little more personal, more, hey, they're kind of growing with us type of thing. Absolutely, dude. I love that. And it's so important to humanize the brand. Like it's one right. thing you have a, a sick brand, sick product, but at the end of the day, you're a, you're a basketball hoop, you're a portable basketball hoop. So that doesn't really resonate with people unless you're showing like the Tim Shields story, how you literally sacrificed the last few years of your life to yeah. grow the sport and grow this company. And God. you kind of gave up on a career and I, I know the backstory. So it's, you put so much damn effort into it. So that definitely resonates. And I love that. Absolutely. And I think that's where this is a little later on, but I think that's, if we talk about like kind of newer strategies that we've been taking, that's one where I've You've been badgering me this on this for so long and I've taken forever to do it. But that's where I think of all the channels, obviously social media is very important, but of all the channels, email is so important. It's because that's where you tell your story. Like in a 10 second post, you're not necessarily going to be able to tell that much detail. You're trying to get their attention quickly. You know, attention spans are tight on social media. To tell your story, you have to do it through email and you have to do it in a way where a decent percentage of people want to open your email. So your subject line has to be good. But that's where it's literally, I'm talking in the last week and a half. I I mean, yeah, you're aware. The first day you've all started using email, I was like, oh my God, what have I been doing all the, like the last year and a half? How have I not been doing this? I'm telling you. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. So talk about that. It's a super fine balance though too. Like, because every time you send an email, you want to make money. But you also don't want to saturate your audience where U-Ball is either A, always on sale or U-Ball is begging for your money 100% of the time. Yeah. So what's that balance been like? I know you're like two weeks into email marketing, sadly, but like what's the <laughs> is balance that looking embarrassing like? to say? <laughs> yeah, I'm running an e-com business that just started taking advantage of email in the last week and a half. <laughs> 
it's been going well, right? You guys oh, just yeah. got back. Oh, uh, yeah. you're, you're on pre- pre-order model, right? Was pre-order, pre-order yeah. So they're, they're coming in start of August. So okay. pre-order for now. Hopefully, luckily, we should be able to shift back into it. I think from here on out, we're, we're good back on a normal schedule manufacturing-wise. We should start being on schedule again. So I think we're fine from here. But the, in, in terms of how I've early on approached email and had had a good bit of success with in the short time I've, I've been doing this is... I think with email, and I think the type of product U-Ball is, is it's a higher price product. It's for a hoop you, you're paying $2.99. So it's not, oh, boom, oh, I'm going to buy this thing for 30 bucks on a whim. What what that means is for U-Ball, it's all about touch points. So I need probably per person five to 10 notable touch points before you almost sort of chip away at them of like, okay, I really do want this. Oh, wait, it, it starts to be on their mind. And the longer it's been on their mind with each touch point, they become more open to a price point where it's like, okay, that is what it is versus the first time maybe you see a product that's more expensive than you'd like. Then it's like, whoa, why is that the price? But over time, as you start to become more familiar with it, you become used to it. And so with U-Ball, it's really just about good touch points and it doesn't even need to be necessarily sale-based. So it could be a post or like one email we did where it was kind of comparing U-Ball to like landlines in the cell phone to basketball hoops and U-Ball hoops. You had to go to a very specific place to call someone on the phone. And you had to have the whole schedule to do it versus now you can kind of put a phone in your pocket, take it wherever. And now that's so the norm. And basically (laughs) like, hey guys, like we are the next cell phone. I mean, a little bit tongue in cheek, but type of stuff where it's not necessarily, hey, we're running a sale check it out. Or sometimes well, an email is like, what type of U-Ball player are you? And it's just like dumb stereotype kind of things. And you make it kind of funny. Like a lot of times it's, you don't need to promote anything particularly. You just need to do say something that's interesting. And for U-Ball, from a U-Ball standpoint, it's, a lot of times it's just about touch points. Like how many good touch points can I get? And over time, people warm up to it. It's usually the model. So it's like from U-Ball sales funnel standpoint, if we can get your email over time, I think we'll be able to explain and just show you why it's so worth it sort of thing. It's exactly. sort of the model. No, 100%. And that's, that's our strategy as well. 150 instead of 300 bucks, but it's also the same thing. We're going to nurture you. It may not be the perfect time. The weather may not be great where you're living right now, but that one week vacation that you have that you're looking forward to all year long, we're going to be available. We're going to be available online, Amazon, and all your closest retail stores. And like yeah. that's the messaging. We and I think that's what you guys have done so well, which you ball is still a little bit younger and a little bit behind you guys where what you guys have done so well is generally, I mean, I think um, maybe there was one, maybe COVID somewhere we had to do a little bit more of the pre-order type model. But yeah. in general, like you guys are so good about being on schedule, being in stock because what you ball has is a number of times because of different supply chain delays, you ball just regularly been behind schedule where it's the backup at the freight here or at backup for with freight here, or mm-hmm. there's a shutdown here where it's just you ball, at least in its really young early infancies, very regularly been fighting the clock of my God, yeah. like their two month delay right when summer's about to start. God damn it. Yeah. We got to pre order. Like no one wants to buy products a lot of times when they have to wait more than course, five who days. Does? Who does? Oh, I wouldn't. Yeah. I, like there's that. That's the thing that's just been very, it, it is what it is sometimes just supply chain wise. But that's, I think, what you guys have done a great job with is being on schedule, being in stock, because that's when you can get them. When it's like, okay, it, it's a good bit of money, but I've really warmed up to it. I would actually love to have it in three days because I'm about to go on this vacation. Or I just would love to have it in my hands finally, see what the hell this thing's all about because I'm starting to hear a lot about it versus, hey, I'm going to put money down and I'm going to have to wait a month sort of thing. 
No, absolutely. Has Afterpay worked for you guys, like the, the installment payments? Ish. I would say 7% of our sales come from that. It's not a, a huge game changer. And frankly, they, they kind of take a lot per sale. But I haven't seen it where it's like dramatically different. I would say probably 7 to 10% of sales would come from that type of thing. I, have you looked into... I mean, Peloton had some success with it. Do you, do you look into a firm at all? I think the way they really spread it out would be an amount where it's more interesting versus four weeks is great, but it's not like totally yeah. insane. We've first tried- over the course of a year is like, that's like, oh, wow, that's reasonable. Yeah, we've tried so many of those damn companies that I can't even remember what ones we haven't tried. I think at this point, we kind of just stuck with the Shopify after payment solution. And it's yeah. like you said, 5%. I talked to Mason about is like on abandoned cart flow number like two, three or four, like sneaking in a message about don't have 300 bucks right now, pay 75 bucks over the course of the next eight months or whatever it is. And yep. I think that would be a, probably a good touch point for sure. Yep. Yep. That makes sure. complete sense. Totally. Yeah. So got a few minutes left on the pod. I want to ask the biggest question. You've been in business for two years, made a lot of money, made a lot of amazing influence. Dude, you have a Lonzo Ball video. Like that's so, so (laughs) sick. But you've made a lot of mistakes too. What is the biggest lesson that you've made? And if you're looking back at the Tim Shields from two years ago, you'd slap yourself in the face saying, do not do this. Totally. Yeah. So I would say aside from, I'd say the most obvious one operationally was kind of the rim thing I talked about with you. But I think aside from that, so that was more on the operational side. I think the biggest mistake I've made, it wasn't one time, it was sort of over the course of a year or two and and just sort of a, a style thing that I need to implement better. Over the course of this short time you've all been in business, I've really gotten the opportunity to come in touch and with a, real, a lot of amazing people that are doing really amazing things. I would say my biggest mistake thus far is I've not been very good at staying in touch with the Uball network and all the people, whether they're directly affiliated with Uball or not. I've not done a very good job of like when I, when I talk to someone like the first time, it's great. It's awesome. It's, Hey, let's stay in touch. You're doing amazing stuff. Likewise. And then it's just, then it's boom. There's this fizzle. Cause I get into this, this little tunnel vision of, okay, you ball, you ball, you ball. When it's not about nurturing the network and, and staying in touch with people, also just being a human. I would, Say that would, aside from the rim thing operationally, I would say that's been my biggest mistake thus far is not really being good at network building and staying in touch with network. So that just because, I mean, you're coming across a lot of cool people and your network is probably significantly better than mine, but just staying in touch and nurturing the network so that it's, you, they're, they're still an active part of your life. That's uh, like, I, I, before you even get to whatever else you're going to say, like, that is so spot on because I felt that way. Like the best piece of advice, I've said it on the podcast a few times now, but I sat down with this older gentleman, kind of like a, my, the, one of the only mentors that I have in my life. Right. I was, I was bitching about the same thing. And he said, pick five, pick five people that you want to be very good friends with by the end of this year, whether they're business, just friendships, maybe they run a U-ball company or something completely outside of your space. Pick five of them, talk to them on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis, follow up. Because the hardest thing is that me and you will go out to dinner, right? This is just like a random example. I go out to dinner yeah. with you. We have nothing to talk about for the next few months. And then you just bug me when you have a favor and you feel like you're bugging. Exactly. Yourself. Exactly. Pick five, pick five and that's it. And then over the next few months, you'll harness five really good friends. Like yeah. Aaron Spivak, if you're listening, he's like one of my closest friends in the world now because I talk to him every damn day. And it's just started with that mentality. What so, do you talk about over like, not to get too granular, but what do you talk about on a day-to-day basis where it doesn't feel like you're bugging? 
Here's a good example. Yesterday, I was trying to figure out ways to lower my SaaS subscription costs for some of my vendors. So I shared across an email that I sent to some of my vendors being like, hey, lower my cost or I'm going to another vendor. And that's just a great example, right? So I provided him value. He wrote back, like just shooting the shit. But like from there, we talked about 11 different things and it was a good two-hour conversation over text message. So little things like that to provide value. And it's important for me to not always be talking about work. We go to basketball games together. We probably go, going up to his lake house in a few months. So it's like, it's stuff like that where it's bigger than business. And dude, you're focused on U-Ball 24-7. It's so important to get some time off too and yeah. just talk about other stuff. Totally. I agree because I think what happens a lot of times is when you your life centers around one thing, you that's all you do. And in some ways, it's good. It amplifies a lot of maybe your strengths and stuff, but almost there's other parts of you that almost atrophies. And like your ability to just enjoy conversation with people without an objective is for me an example I've started to really in a weird way struggle with is I start looking at everything through the lens of, okay, what's the objective here? Okay. Are we accomplishing anything? If not, let's, let's move on. I don't want to waste their time. We got all have things to do. And suddenly you just start being social or you go out with old friends and you're like almost clumsy or rusty at having conversations where it's like, wait, there's no objective here. So what's the point that, that type of thing. It's so well said. I hope this advice helps you. I know it's going to help a lot of people. You're, you're so damn accurate. Everybody goes through it. Going back to being a human, it's not always transactional. Not everything needs to be. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> I love it. Bro, where, where can people follow you? Where can people find you, Ball? Okay. So you, at Uball on Instagram and TikTok are the main place we're active. We're going to start needing to get sort of Twitter and, and Facebook up and running again. But Uball or TikTok and Instagram has been the main focus. So at Uball and then just on Instagram at Tim Shields 31. Beautiful. I love it. Tim, thanks for joining, brother. I appreciate you. For sure. This is awesome. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. So that's another episode of My Biggest Lessons. Each and every week, I'll be having one of my favorite entrepreneurs come on, share their stories, their mistakes, the things they wish they knew. Entrepreneurship's a lonely road, right? You only learn by getting better. You only learn by making mistakes. So I want them to come on, share their stories. If you have somebody in mind that you want on, drop a comment, subscribe, share with a friend. Let's get the best people in the world on here. Thanks for listening.